Hello everyone and welcome to the Unorthodoxy podcast. My name is Duncan Rayburn and this is the fifth installment in our series on a murdered god and an exiled queen. So far, we've covered some of the main theological developments that have made the death of God possible. These developments took place in the late medieval period, and they set up the birth of the modern era. In this episode, I want to look at a very simple idea in relation to some of the things we've already covered, namely the idea that our automatic ways of perceiving often render us unconscious. What we take as normal is often not at all normal. In fact, it can be just plain weird. So what we need often is an experience of waking up or coming to consciousness. This process is referred to by Plato and Jesus as metanoia or conversion. An image may help us to think of what conversion is often like. It's like a kid who lives his whole life on a mountain and one day he sets off to explore the world. And when he's traveled a little way, he decides to look back at his house, which is perched on a hill. Or so he has always thought. And he discovers that it's not a hill, but the nose of a giant. The reality is the same, but it looks very suddenly quite different. David Foster Wallace gave this famous commencement address, I'm sure some of you know it, that begins with a fable about two younger fish who are confronted by a wise old fish who remarks on how nice the water is. When the old fish has gone his own way, one of the young fish says to the other, What the hell is water? Well, for us, the water we're in, the water we don't realize we're perceiving from, is referred to in a lot of scholarship as modernity. And it includes that later form of modernity called post-modernity. It's actually very important to see post-modernity as a continuation of modernity. It's not merely its opposite. Modernity, to use another analogy, is the nose of the giant that we've been living on our whole lives without realizing it. It's so much a part of our natural way of seeing that we don't realize that it is, in fact, a kind of mythology. Although it happens to be a mythology that claims that it is not a mythology. Given that this is the case, the only way to see it as a mythology is to look at it as if from the outside. Without being able to see it from the outside, it will remain something that is too close to be seen. As some of you have probably realized by now, this has been one of my aims in this series, to show you that many of the ideas that we take as natural are in fact unnatural. Many of the ideas at the root of the modern, ideas most of us take for granted without even knowing what they are, were once invented. What was once a new fashion has become what some people in scholarship regard as a tradition of the new. That is, a tradition that is against tradition. The hyper-technological, hyper-materialist, hyper-economic world we live in, despite the influence of post-modernity, or maybe because of it, is still very modern. The tendency to privilege materialist explanations over spiritual ones, well, that's modern too. Any commitment to literalist Bible reading is modern. Any conception of the Bible as mere fiction, well, that's also modern. Liberal theology is modern, as is deconstruction, as is psychoanalytic theology. When Jesus becomes regarded as a merely historical figure, well, that's modern. And when Jesus is seen as a historical person, but also as an archetypal mythical symbol of an enlightened consciousness, that's modern too. 
I don't mean the word modern here as a pejorative term, though. It's, it's just descriptive of the general state of the present moment. Although I do wholeheartedly believe that there are ways to transcend this general state. I think there are good ways to get beyond both the modern and the postmodern without merely being a reactionary pre-modernist. All of this requires, as I've said, conversion. It requires a kind of consciousness that doesn't just see things as is, but sees through them and beyond them. Such a consciousness would be able to evaluate both the good and the bad of the modern way of seeing, the bad being that the modern loss of the spiritual has resulted, in a sense, in the distortion of the value of material reality itself, either by a kind of overvaluing of it or an undervaluing of it. To understand modernity, it helps to think of it as the era within which the differentiation of the spheres of life became possible. The pre-modern concerned itself with the whole of life, thus theology being the queen of the sciences, so everything is connected and interconnected. Any form of study was a study, indirectly or directly, of the mind of God. Every mode of being was religious, in the sense of being about the relationality of reality. You get a sense of this, for example, in the fact that the ancients, like the ancient rabbis or cults, would have blessings and prayers for every human activity. They wouldn't just say grace before meals, but before and during and after all kinds of things, including those things that would prompt a lot of people to tell you to get your mind out of the gutter. And this would seem very strange to us, mostly because of how modern we are. Certain activities feel very spiritual to us, while others just don't. But for the pre-modern mind, the lack of differentiation between the spheres of life made it easier to regard life as a whole, something as having unity. It came with some difficulties too, though. If you wanted to study science, for example, as the alchemists did, then you would have a hard time telling the difference between the properties of specific substances and the nature of the soul. Everything was intermingled. It bled together such that studying chemicals was somehow also part of this process of spiritual growth, as the alchemists saw it. The doctrine of the analogy of being, as another example, taps into the idea that all consciousness is analogical, which means that it sees connections everywhere, but it struggled to point out differences per se, kind of differences separate from this unity. And it was precisely because of the theological developments we've already discussed in previous episodes. To see the world as more fragmented and fractured as university, voluntarism, nominalism, and representational knowledge do, for example, was to allow for the possibility of considering the universe apart from matters of theological and spiritual importance. To put it kind of crudely, you could go to church on Sunday and believe that the Bible taught us about a flat world at the center of the cosmos, even if it actually didn't. And then you could set out to work on Monday to figure out how heliocentric our solar system really was. You could also read Genesis 3 on Sunday and believe that Adam and Eve were literal people corrupted by some magic fruit, and then at a different time consider how the fall of man was symbolized by this as a, a kind of symbol of ego construction or emergence that we all undergo. It's, in other words, you could see it as not a literal thing on a different day. However, when 
different spheres of life were differentiated, the result was much more dramatic than I'm actually making it out to be right now. Things didn't so much split apart as completely flee from each other. Religion and science became not just different domains of study, but totally opposite and even conflicting domains. This is something that always fascinates me in people, the tendency to see opposition when the issue is just difference. If I point out, for instance, that more money is spent on breast cancer research than on prostate cancer research, or that more men die from being at work than women do, it's easy to hear such statements as a kind of dialectic men versus women or something like that. In the same way, if I point out that women are more likely in egalitarian societies to become nurses and teachers and psychologists than men are, it's just an observation. It's a very simple comparative. But it's amazing how observations can be perceived as judgments, or as somehow or another ideological. Well, even if the original differentiation between the spheres of life served a purpose at one time, the human tendency to polemicize difference, to turn it into an argument for a war, basically, has manifested all kinds of problems. If this sounds familiar to you, it probably should, because certainly most of us in recent history have inherited this split-up, broken-apart world. We've inherited the oppositional logic of modernity. Modern logic tends to be either or. Although, I would hasten to add that I'm not necessarily advocating for a simplistic both-and logic. I'd advocate for something more like a both, either or, and both-and logic. A way of thinking that allows us to see the unity between both unity and difference. In theology, in the wake of modernity, differentiation and polemicization began to spread like a contagion. And this meant that what was once perceived to be a fairly stable world with a fairly stable theological order became perceptibly, as a rule, unstable. When the world becomes unstable, increasingly people will try to look for some or another kind of stability. They will try to find whatever works, even if whatever works happens to be a very temporary solution. And inevitably, almost universally, you will find a strange oscillation between the tribe and the individual as sources of stability. Without a sense of a transcendent anchor, the imminent realm of selves and others becomes the best shot we have at finding our way through the world. To state the old 12-step program idea, when things aren't working, we tend to want more of what is not working. Of course, many things in the modernist era and mindset work very well. Many of the outcomes of modernity have been profoundly good and very effective. Give me modern medicine over medieval leeches any day. But spirituality itself became something secondary to modern reason, some kind of add-on if you happen to have time, and that's something that we still live with today. It was quickly regarded as little more than a bias, a form of magical thinking that you could keep as long as you kept it at home. The way out of this for a lot of religious folks has been to adopt the mindset of the modern. In times gone by, and even today, scientific materialism has become a way of engaging with the Bible itself. Suddenly the text became not a living thing, but a corpse to be dissected on an autopsy table. Thus the inevitability of things like the Jesus Seminar and the historical grammatical method. 
certainly this is a fantastic way of understanding certain things, some things, but the very last thing on the list of such things is spiritual formation or actual enlightenment or transcendence. Ironically, the modern enlightenment became in some respects more of a darkening of spiritual consciousness than the Dark Ages. In some ways, the Dark Ages were more enlightened than the Enlightenment. To restate this in different terms, what happens pretty soon after all that stuff about university and nominalism is that increasingly, and even more so after the reformers seize onto all that faulty ontology as, as the modernist mind develops, theology soon also becomes defined and redefined and rearticulated not as seeking the meaning, logos of God, theos, but as seeking the meaning of representations of God. Thus, the relative becomes absolute, and the idols warned against in the Ten Commandments become the aim of a lot of theology. God becomes always and in all things one step away from being accessible. By the time postmodernity shows up on the historical scene, doing its best to undermine the arrogance of some of modernity, but without actually getting rid of modernity's arrogance, because it was still a product of modernity's arrogance, the frame is most definitely the imminent frame described by Charles Taylor, although it is slightly more aware of its own groundlessness, so maybe that's a good thing. The world, to follow Max Weber's description of the modern, is ultimately a disenchanted world, that is, a world devoid of any real spiritual significance. Now, many of you might say, well, of course, the world really is devoid of any real spiritual significance. You'd say maybe that the natural is real and that the supernatural is just a mental projection. Science is the measure of truth and religion is just in the realm of imaginary beings and other mental constructs. Well, we could debate all of this and maybe we could even posit the possibility that it is true. But the key thing to note is that in the modern era and certainly still in ours, the fact that such statements would be regarded as completely natural and uncontroversial is proof that modernity has normalized what would have once been considered abnormal. What once would have looked to the medieval mind to be a gas chamber for spiritual life is simply the air we breathe right now. It doesn't seem like it's killing us, even though it is. I think most of us are prone to living in denial in, in one way or another. It's that psychological state of defensiveness that keeps reality at bay and our illusions comfortably intimate. The interesting thing about denial is that when you're in it, you can't see it, like those fish in that water that David Foster Wallace talked about. When someone confronts you with the truth, it's very easy to assume that they are in denial or just plain wrong, when you yourself are refusing to accept the truth of what is going on. Well, there are ways to see modernity as a kind of denial, maybe even a kind of spiritual denial. It accepts certain truths, of course, but not the whole. It allows for some things to enter the frame, but not others. One way of thinking about the kind of denial that modernity perpetuates and confirms is as a collapsing of a larger story into a smaller one. Theology represents something like a meta-story, that is, a larger narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. This story represents the structure of reality, so of course you can find it in fractals in everything you encounter. This story collapses into mythology, 
which collapses again into ideology. So it starts really big and then gets smaller and smaller. Modernity, which I would say is ideological, collapses the larger story into a materialist vision of the same story, including a sense that redemption will take place by human will over and against divine grace. When I put it like this, it may sound rather bleak, but there is a way to see this collapsing of a larger vision into a smaller one as also representing something of a death that gives rise to the possibility of resurrection. What exactly does this resurrection entail, though? I really wanted to be able to say more on this episode about this, but unfortunately I haven't had enough time to prepare more than what I've already presented to you, so you will have to wait for some of the details, as will I. What I will suggest as a kind of practical conclusion, if it is that, uh, to this highly theoretical episode is that sometimes it's helpful to spend time every now and then looking at obvious things and asking yourself the question of how they got there. It's interesting with things, but it can be even more interesting with beliefs when you do this. I obviously think it's valuable that we examine our beliefs, that we take the trouble to look closely at what they are, not just so that we can have a better or cleverer way to defend our beliefs, but but because it might be a way for us to stand the chance of actually seeing beyond them. Until next time, may you know that the world you live in is not obvious. And may you know that much of what is not obvious is a gift. In fact, that your life is a gift, a gift that is meant to be given to yourself, to those around you, and to God who